So it was a Sunday afternoon, and I had been traveling, and I returned, and I had the privilege, one of my favoriteest things in the world, of putting my then two-and-a-half-year-old grandson down for his nap while his mama worked. She was a single mom. She needed to go to work. They lived with us in these days. She went to work and cut and styled people's hair. Thank you. <laughs> and I had the privilege of putting the little guy down. That word nap sounded old, but really good in that moment. And so I laid my own little head down. And just as I was dozing off, I heard this crash this eruption that went through our home. And I sat up and I thought, what? I got up and I walked into the entryway, the hall, into my living room, and as my feet hit the floor of my dining room, I knew exactly the cause of this crash. Because you see, this three-shelf hutch that had hung on my dining room wall and had held the contents of my grandmother's antique china collection, had lost its grip, taking the entire contents with it down to smithereens, everything. These were beautiful, hand-painted portrait plates that my grandmother had picked up in antique shops all over Europe where she had traveled in little tour buses with other blue-haired ladies, and she bought them, brought them back to me all bubble-wrapped and cocooned, and she unwrapped them and shared them with me, and this was a life legacy in my grandmother that I so desperately had wanted to inherit when she passed. There were a beautiful legacy that hung on my dining room wall. I bent down next to the mess. And I looked at maybe a saucer, a plate maybe that was left. It was a season when honestly I felt like everything was falling off of the walls in my home, in my life. You've been through seasons like that maybe? And I didn't have any option but to go and get a, a dustpan and a broom and sweep up the mess and walk over and throw it into the trash. I was devastated and I felt God bend down next to me and go, yeah, I know, sweet pea. I said, I feel like I'm beyond help. And he goes, you are, but you're not beyond me. I want to ask you a series of questions this morning. Okay, do not raise your hand and answer, all right? Don't look up and make eye contact and go, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, you don't want to. I want to ask you this series of questions and see if you can answer yes to any of them here. Just one at a time again, no eye contact, no raised hands. See if you can take a step of honesty just within yourself to see if you can say yes. Are you a child of addiction or of divorce or of a single parent? Have you lost a child or a grandchild? Do you have a daughter who became pregnant as a teenager and then a second time? Is someone in your family or your extended family gay and you're trying to learn how do I love this precious one? Does someone in your home today struggle with alcohol or drugs? Have you received maybe a child through adoption or has someone in your family or extended family been relinquished through adoption? Has someone chosen abortion? Have you received a recorded phone message that your child is not in school and you're not sure where they are if they're not in school? 
Or maybe a call from a lab reporting a positive drug test. Or maybe an eerie middle-of-the-night phone call that someone you love has been arrested or has been in an accident or is drunk again. How many of you answered yes, don't look at me? To any of those questions, maybe, maybe you've ticked off one of those boxes or maybe one or two of those boxes. Maybe some of you have answered yes, 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 yes. And you know, honestly, you've never really told anybody out loud that you've been through these answers questions except for the same people who also answered yes in those same circumstances. And you carry this, this shroud of shame over you thinking, how do I lift my head up? Nobody knows this stuff about me and you come into a room like this and you think, I would love to be this free, grace-filled follower of Christ, but somehow you have this big loser label stuck to who you are. And when you come and you gather with these beautiful, gorgeous people who are successful and are contributing, you think to yourself, I want to respond to God's invitation to generosity. I do. But honestly, there is stuff in my life. There is mess within the walls of my home. There is mess within the halls of my businesses. There's mess within my leadership. There's mess in my relationships, and I do not feel adequate. Yeah, I know. I know. I've answered yes to every one of those questions. Oh, the issues that have come into our home. I have sat in, in waiting rooms, in counseling rooms, in hospital visitation rooms, in inmate visitation rooms, in courtrooms. And I think, how did this happen? Oh, the issues. Okay, I come from a broken family. When I was maybe five years old, my, my father called me into his study and I climbed up onto his lap because I love daddy time. He was at that point a rising star in his business. This man came from a 10th grade education. He went to work at age 10 to sack groceries in Atlanta, Georgia. And he became the CEO of a very, very, very successful broadcasting company. I didn't know any of that, I was five. He pulls me up into his lap and he turns my little face towards him and he holds onto my shoulders and he goes, Elisa, I've decided I don't love your mother anymore and we're going to get a divorce. I felt like my family fell and broke. And I wondered, as many children do, what I had done to cause it. My new family of my mom and my older sister and my younger brother and I, we moved across the United States. And when I was around 11, I remember my morning starting with the sound of her alarm clock going off down the hall in our ranch-style home in Houston, Texas. <laughs> kind of like that, you know. And I would pull back the covers, I'd pad into the kitchen, I'd grab a glass and plunk some ice cubes in it and pour Coca-Cola over the top. I would grab a couple of chocolate chip cookies and I would take this breakfast down the hall to my mom who was still asleep, the alarm still blaring, and I put the breakfast on her nightstand, turned off the alarm and began the process of trying to wake my mom up. She was a single mom, she needed to go to work, we needed her money, and as an 11-year-old I began to realize, my mom is broken. It felt like my family fell and broke again because my mom struggled with alcohol. Her diet was bacon, cigarettes, and scotch. <sighs> yeah, and we didn't get bacon, we had Pop-Tarts. But anyway, that's, that's kind of what it was like. But I wondered to myself, 
What had I done to, to break her? You know, surely if I had been better, she wouldn't drink like this, right? When I was around 16 years old, while I had been going to church all my life, you know what my mom did? She would take my older sister and I to the local church, I think it was a Presbyterian church, and she would drop us off at nine in the morning on Sunday and pick us up at 11.30, two and a half hours of free daycare. Oh, she was so smart. We didn't know what to do. So we joined the adult choir. And, and we had these long burgundy robes with creamy stoles, and we would sing, Lou, how a rose blooming. They were so sweet to us. And I knew somehow that God loved me, but I didn't understand who he was until through a ministry called Young Life. I came to understand that God adored me and that he wanted to have a relationship with me. And I just went headlong for it. I clarified God's call on my life, went through college, and ended up enrolling in seminary in Denver, Colorado. And that's where I met my husband, dear, stable, rock of a man, Evan. We made a commitment as we made it to each other that we would never even use the word divorce. I was determined, as I had known Jesus, that I was gonna create a perfectly intact second family. I may have come from a broken family, but my second family, because I knew Jesus, right, was gonna be bing, perfect. I couldn't wait, and he felt the same way. We knew we couldn't have children biologically, so we endured the long, arduous process of waiting for a baby through adoption. Can I just say that four and a half years is kind of like being dilated to a nine for four and a half years, okay? We finally get one child, our precious little baby girl, and a couple of years later, our little guy. Love this time. Evan and I were involved in full-time Christian ministry. I was working in a college. He was working at the seminary. We raised our children up in the church. We would have Jesus time every night, and we'd get out the little Kenneth Taylor devotional books and count the ladybugs. We never missed one. We never missed time with Jesus. We, we spent our lives in church. We had all kinds of small group people that loved on our kids. We were doing it right. Around this time, I think my kids were in the preschool years, I received a phone call from a board member from Mops International asking if I'd be interested in applying to become the first president of this grassroots organization that had already been around for 15 years and God's hand had been on it, but they needed to formalize their leadership. And truly I thought, what, me? I'm the one from the broken family. I'm the girl who's never been pregnant. Are they crazy? Did they mean to call me? Are they looking for Mother Elisa or Mother Teresa? You know, wait a minute. Is it Mother Inferior, Mother Superior? Wait a minute. So because though I had been praying when that phone call came in, I, I committed to pray about it. And I doubled up my therapy sessions and I ended up, I ended up going to the grocery store one day and it's like God just kind of nudged me to look at the other moms in line. I mean, back in those days, they were wearing sweats and they had their hair in a ponytail. Today, it would be yoga pants and a messy bun, right? Same thing, though. Same thing. And I'm looking around at them and I'm going, I don't know how to be a mother. Do you know that God gives children every time to people who've never been parents before? <laughs> what is he thinking? What is it he given to us, the grandparents? We are amazing. No. But as I'm looking around at them, he's like, Elisa, I'm not asking you to be perfect. 
I'm asking you to just be honest. See all the same Swiss cheese holes in their souls that are in yours? Let's match them up. Just get up on a platform of vulnerability and admit you don't know what you're doing either and watch the freedom flow. Give me your deficits, Elisa, and I'll make them your offering. Yeah. So I said yes, and I served there for 20 years total. What an amazing season. I remember at one point when my kids were in their teenager years, I, I had this dream. And in this dream, I was walking through a home that was under construction, you know, kind of scaffolding. Jesus was my tour guide in the dream. And he stopped me at these two rooms that were adjacent to each other. And he goes, Elisa, this room is for your daughter, and this room is for her baby. I'm like, what? <laughs> Wake up, you know, what did I eat? A couple of nights later, the dream repeated itself. Home under construction. Jesus is the tour guide. This room for your daughter, this room for her baby. I still didn't know what to make of it. One day, not long after that, I was in a conference room in our offices at Mops International, and we were gathered together talking about the formation of what would be called teen mops for moms who were teenagers, having babies, children having children. And, and God bent down in my ear and he whispered, Elisa, you're gonna know more about this than anyone in this room. And I'm like, what? I go home. And I ask my beautiful five foot seven state ranked swimming champion daughter, my high schooler, who had, who had just returned from a missions trip with her youth group to Kenya to serve HIV AIDS orphans. Really? Is there any reason you could be pregnant? And she nods. And me, never before pregnant me, I get to go to the grocery store and pick up an at-home pregnancy test and take it home to my daughter and stand outside the bathroom door while she goes inside and pees on a stick to find out, yes, she's pregnant. And I'm the president of Mops International. What? And it's not just my daughter who begins to lose her life. My newly adolescent son begins to steer his life into the ditches of substance abuse, legal issues, truancy. And to me, it felt like my second family fell and broke. And I wondered what I had done to cause it and what I could do to fix it. There's so much more, so much more to my story. But here's the thing. I come from a broken family. And despite my very best efforts and my prayer-filled intentions, I still come from a broken family. And you know what I've learned? I'm not alone. In fact, I don't think there's any such thing as a perfect family. We all come from broken families because in one way or another, God's family is broken. Think about it. In the beginning, God created man and woman, Adam and Eve, created in his image, carrying his imprimatur, going forward. But in the, the space of the first five books of the Bible, Adam and Eve give birth to children, one of whom murders the other. The first family is actually a divorced family, a family divorced from the heart of God and turning away from him. And God's heart so breaks over the breakage in his first family that he decides to start all over again with Noah this time. 
And things go along swimmingly for like 40 days and 40 nights until, again, they break. And as a result of that next intention, things like, oh, Father Abraham ends up sleeping with a slave, Hagar, to give birth to an illegitimate heir. And Jacob makes his way through one sister to end up at the desired end. And David liaisons indecently with Bathsheba. And it goes on and on. That's just the Old Testament. The New Testament starts out with a pregnant, unwed teenager. Wow. We all come from a broken family because in one way or another, God's family was broken. And we all end up with another broken family because in one way or another, we break our families. Our creator, God, just pants to bring us into existence. And then we run and hide from him and he longs for us to return. Our father, God, christens us as sons and daughters. And then he stands in the road and waits for us as we abandon him. And our hereafter, God, dreams of that moment when we'll be restored to his original intention, his dream for who he made us to be, as we one day return to him. We come from a broken family. Why are we so surprised by this? Think of it this way. If God, who is the perfect parent, ended up with a broken family, why do we think we can do it any differently? I think it's time to talk. I think it's time to expose mythology that we tend to have adopted. The mythology that because you know Jesus, because you do it right, you can create a perfectly intact second family, a perfectly intact family at all. The reality is, is the power is not ours. You see, I realized through therapy and through prayer and with Jesus, I thought it was my fault that my first family fell and broke. And so I decided it was my responsibility to create a perfect family. The problem is, I'm broken. I'm a broken being. I think it's time to share the fact that, that God actually offers hope to broken families. He sees beauty in them. He, he creates what I call broken family values. Things like commitment and courage and love and forgiveness. Things like diversity and respect Discipline, these amazing qualities, and these are now the relics that hang on my dining room wall. He gets it that our wayward loved ones are never beyond his reach. He gets it that abnormal is pretty much normal, and he brings beauty in the broken. Isaiah chapter 53, verse 5, underlines God's provision for the broken family. In fact, if we have the slide, let's read it together. But... He, read it together, was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. That word bruised really means black and blue marks. It's broken blood vessels. And healed is a word that means made whole restored. By Jesus' broken blood vessels, we are made whole again. His breaking provided our wholeness. Okay, now, while the brokenness in our first families is not our fault, and I really want you to hear me say that, the brokenness in your first family is not your fault. Children are not responsible to make sure their parents stay married. Children are not responsible to make sure their parents don't overdrink. 
Children are not responsible to make sure adults don't place their hands in inappropriate places. The brokenness in your first family is not your fault. There may be some things in your second family that you want to take back, and goodness knows have I done that. You may need to trot out some of your apologies. I get it. But when that hutch clatter, clattered off of the wall in my dining room, I realized that I began a kind of a toppling of my own, a rearrangement of who I was. When we sit amongst the shards of our brokenness, I didn't have any choice but to sweep them up and throw them away. But God bends down, and he picks up one piece at a time, and he holds it up, and he goes, oh, I know just what to do with that. That's encouraging because God has a plan for our brokenness. In this weekend, alongside you here, right in this room, we need to understand that our brokenness is beautiful to God. We come in here with our success and with our contribution in mind, and it's likely that in hearts here there are but, but, buts rising up inside of us. A, a struggle with this, a struggle with that. We think, oh, I'm really not enough here. And my goal today is to help us understand that those things that we hold right in the front of our mind, they're barely conscious, but they scream control over us. God can take and change and reshape and restore. I want to hold out two sentences to you, two sentences of hope to rearrange your broken. The first one is this, God loves the broken. He loves the broken. He loves you exactly as you are, but he loves you too much to leave you that way. He longs to restore you, to redeem you, to reshape you. He sees you're broken and he knows it and he loves it. It's a hard thing to understand. I mean, I've got a lot of objections to this, but he loves us enough to die for us and to reshape. Jerry Sitzer is an author who wrote a book you may be familiar with called A Grace Disguised. In one moment, in one night, he lost his mother, his wife, and his daughter in a car accident. And to try and make sense of this devastating tragedy, he wrote this book, A Grace Disguised. Some 20 years later, still being shaped by that experience, he wrote a follow-up book, and he titled it A Grace Revealed because he says yesterday's grace disguised is today's grace revealed. We can touch that. We can understand that we who have been broken. God loves the broken, but he loves us too much to leave us the way we are. I mean, take me. I'm not the same person I was when my father called me up into his lap. I'm not the same person I was when I turned off my mom's alarm. I'm not the same person I was when I met and married my husband or when my daughter became pregnant as a teen for the first or the second time. I'm not the same person I was when I found out my brother was gay. I'm not the same person I was when I became the president of Mops and I'm not the same person I was when I stepped down for the next generation to lead. I'm different. I'm broken. And the pieces of me don't go back together the same way. I still find my giggle when I chase my grandson around the island in my kitchen. I love that. I can still enliven a strategic discussion on vision. I love to open up God's word in our living room and talk about why the Bible matters. But in most of these moments, instead of being the one who has the answers, I'm more likely to go, well, what about... 
And when someone breaks apart and crying, instead of going, here's three verses, I'm pretty sure they'll help you, I, I put my arm around him and I say, where's the Kleenex? I need it too. I, I'm broken. I'm different. And God loves broken me. And he's remaking broken me. A friend challenged me. Okay, it was my therapist again. <laughs> Do you just love what David said, that we are so messed up that God had to give us a built-in counselor? Oh, that is like a keeper line. Love that. Okay, so my therapist sat down with me one day and said, Elisa, I just really want you to own God's love for you. I want you to sit down every day, just for like five minutes, and think about how much God loves you. I thought, well, that's an easy assignment. Sure, I'll do it. And so I sat down the first day, and I'm like, God loves me. God loves me. You know, just, oh, a woman being still five minutes? What do you expect? I was so tired. Tried it again the next day. Okay, God loves me. God loves me. And I need kitty litter, and we better, you know, I'm just gone. Worked on it again the next day, still hard. Two or three more days into it, I'm thinking, God loves me. And into my head came this sentence that I'd never heard before. I'd never heard it anywhere. I love you, Elisa. I had heard God loves you, and he has a wonderful plan for your life. Special sentence. I had heard Jesus loves you, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. But I had never heard that first person, God, to me, I love you, Elisa. Have you ever heard that? I love you. I love you, Jack. I love you, Meredith. I love you, Rebecca. I love you, David. I love you, Jasmine. I love you, Catherine. I love you, Jeremy. I love you. I love you. And that sentence starts and stops my day. I, I love you. I love you. God loves the broken. And he loves us too much to leave us this way. And oh my gosh, he's loving and redeeming and reshaping you and your broken family. And wouldn't it be awesome if by the time you left here on Sunday, it was done. Boom. Wouldn't that be just phenomenal? But it won't be. It's going to keep going because, you see, if he was done with us, we'd be dead, right? So this is a process, an ongoing process of him reshaping and reforming. God loves the broken. Second sentence, God uses the broken. God uses the broken. It's a stunning realization to think about. And yet it's a theme that threads all through Scripture, isn't it? Think about it. God used two broken stone tablets in Exodus chapter 32 to cause the Israelites to repent of their disobedience. He used a broken heart in Psalm 51 to turn King David back from his sin with Bathsheba. He used a broken roof to provide access to Jesus where four friends lowered a paralytic into his presence in Mark chapter 2. He used broken loaves to feed 5,000-plus people in Matthew 14. He used broken fishing nets in Luke chapter 5 to teach the disciples that they weren't here to catch fish, 
but rather to attract people to the truth of Jesus. He used a broken flask in Mark chapter 14 to express the love that flows out of a relationship with Jesus where Mary of Bethany anointed Jesus' body before he died in a moment when he could receive that gesture. He used a broken ship in Acts chapters 27 and 28 to help Paul take the good news of the gospel in the name of Jesus Christ to the island of Malta who might not ever have heard of the name of Jesus without it. God uses the broken until he uses the broken body of his son in Isaiah 53 to reveal his love for you and his healing power and his desire to pull us close. He uses the broken. It's so hard for us to understand that. The reality is that we think those broken things in our lives that we came in hidden, 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 disqualify us, don't we? What if, what if those things that we've been broken in, when placed in the hands of Jesus, actually further qualify us? Think about it. You've had cancer. Oh, it's so diminishing and demeaning. You lose your hair, you lose your strength, you lose what you think is going to be your life. And then suddenly you find things begin to turn, your numbers begin to change, your hair begins to grow back, little duck down that it is, and you're like, okay. You've got a whole closet full of scarves and wigs. You've learned the baseball cap thing. You got it down. When a friend of yours is diagnosed, you call him up and you go, you know what? I know what this is like and it's super embarrassing to ask for help, but you're going to feel really depleted and it's going to be hard. So I'm just going to make a commitment to you right now. I'm picking you up every Wednesday morning for your chemo and I'm going to drive you and you can use my chemo blanket to keep warm in there and I'm just going to sit with you and pray. If you want to talk, great. If you don't want to talk, because you know, because you've been there. Or maybe you were raised by a single mom and you had so many months where you just didn't even know, even as a child, is my mom going to be able to make the bills this month? And you watch her save and save and save for Christmas, the one time when you can have a little bit of abundance. And on Christmas morning, you go out into the family room where Santa's brought the gifts and there is a color TV. Everybody in your class has had one for five years and you have never seen one in your home. And you think to yourself, somehow my mom made this happen. Wow, even despite the cigarettes and the Pop-Tarts and the Scotch, she made this happen, wow. And so when you're an adult and you're standing in the grocery line and you look ahead and you see this mom, she's got a little toddler in her basket and you're thinking, oh, she's a single mom. You can tell there's circles under her eyes and she's tired and she's got the whole messy bun yoga pants thing going on. And your heart kind of goes out and she's got cupcakes mounted on the conveyor belt. You can watch her. She's kind of counting, 35 and 36, how much money each item is. She begins to chat with a the clerk. These are for my dad's birthday. He helps me out so much. I just thought the least I could do was to help him celebrate. And then you see that just kind of concern in her face. And at the last second, as the item's totaled up, you slide your credit card in. She turns around and goes, who did that? And you just stand there and smile. The clerk makes a big deal of it. But you know you could do that, and so you did. Or maybe you find yourself down this long sidewalk, and you look up at this very sterile building, and it says Arapahoe Correctional Facility, or maybe Orange County Correctional Facility, or whatever state, county, correctional facility. And you get yourself up through the door. You notice there is a security guard behind a 
a glass with a slit under it. She goes, driver's license, and you pull your driver's license out and slide it under, and she finds your name and takes a highlighter and goes across the line where your name is and your reservation for your 9.30 appointment. She looks at you and says, cubicle number 13. You're like, and then the door buzzes. You're, what, what, what? She looks at you again. Cubicle number 13. So you grab the door just at the last second before that buzz stops, open it. Your mouth is dry. You're getting a little pity. You don't quite know what to do, but you find your plastic chairs and you count them down. Okay, this must be 10, 13. You sit down in the plastic chair and there's a monitor in front of you with a receiver. You, you pick it up and the monitor comes to life and there is the face of your loved one. <gasps> How are you? Are you okay? Are you eating? Are you safe? You begin to talk, and they talk, and you notice there's a timer in a little bitty corner, and you begin to count down, and you realize, oh my goodness, I only have five more minutes, and then two more minutes, and the screen goes black. And you push back from the monitor, and you have this kind of sick feeling in your stomach, but you gather your belongings, and you make your way out the door. But as you're going, what's happening inside you is this, this cloud of blur and in it you're going how did we get here how did I get here and you get in your car and you drive home you pull yourself together and that next Friday at 9 30 you find yourself again back at the end of the sidewalk and you begin to walk up and you go through the door and this time you're ready you've got your driver's license slided under there she goes, cubicle number nine. You get that door in the first try. <clears throat> Got it. Eight, nine, sit down in your chair. Pick up the receiver. Here comes your loved one's face. And this time, you're ready. You've got your Jesus calling. You've got your Bible. You've got your scripture memorization cards. You think, if you're in there and I'm out here, I'm going to talk and you're going to listen. Let's pray. We're having a little Jesus time here. And you chat, chat, chat. And the screen goes black. You gather up your possessions and you go out. And just as you turn and you hit that sidewalk of the exit, you notice there's another person coming up the walk. And you see in their eyes that same terror. They've never been here. Your eyes lock. And this person may be a different age than you. They may speak a different language than you. They may have a different color of skin than you. But as your eyes lock, you know exactly what they're thinking, and it's this. How did we get here? How did I get here? And you nod, and you nod, because you know God uses the broken. He uses it when we put our brokenness into his hands. He can further expand it. He can further change us. This is what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 4, 7. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that this all-surpassing power is from God, not from us. He does not sweep us up and throw us away. Brokenness is not a penalty that you have to carry it is a pathway to abundance. From you, it can flow over and out of you into others. When John talked last night about the love of mammon destroying our compassion, you can count on that, and you can count on this. Brokenness restores compassion. 
It is in the soil of our brokenness that the compassion of Jesus Christ gives birth and grows up through us and out into others in our broken world who need to know the hope and the help that we have discovered in a relationship with Jesus. Parker J. Palmer underlines how much more we can offer because we're broken. He says, good leadership comes from people who have penetrated their own inner darkness and who can lead the rest of us to a place of hidden wholeness because they've been there and they know the way. I was in an antique shop in a little suburb outside of London and I ran across this stack of plates. They caught my attention because they looked so much like my grandmother's. There was a stack of them and I picked one up and I realized, oh my goodness, there's a crack running all the way through it. I thought, how is this thing being held together? I was terrified, I held it really shakily, and I turned it over, and on the back, I saw that this plate had been stapled together. What? And so I gathered the, the stack, and I took them up to the proprietress, and I said, what is this? What's happened? She said, well, this is a technique of China porcelain repair done in the Victorian times. It's a, bra uh, uh, a brass rivet. I said, why would anybody bother? Why don't they just throw it away? And she said, well, if you had a choice to eat off of a repaired china plate or a board, for instance, what would you do? I thought, oh my gosh, God doesn't throw us away and replace us with boards. No, he, he, he staples us back together and he uses, God stapled his son to a cross that we might be useful in our brokenness. God loves the broken. God uses the broken. This year I've been married 38 years. That staple rock of a man has stayed. In fact, he's right here, right here with us today. We still spend all of our time in full-time Christian work we still love our kids and pray over our meals. We still helicopter parent and get way too intrusive and involved. Yep. And my kids, they're paving their own paths. They love Jesus. Sometimes they go to church. They pray in text messages. They express their beliefs in inked symbols on their bodies. Pretty much all over their bodies, right? My, my daughter expresses her love for Jesus as she cuts and styles people's hair. She advocates for her sons at every turn. This year, she became a coordinator in her mops group. I heard her in this leadership meeting in my home, in the dining room. Now, should we pray about this? I'm like, what's that? She's married to this man who's so gentle he won't kill an intruding praying mantis, but rather he ushers him out on a broom. <laughs> My son turns the pages of his big book and he looks at my husband and I and he thanks us for yet another chance. Three years ago in June, he stood at an altar and exchanged vows with a beautiful woman who loves Jesus too. The reality, though, if you put a toothpick into my family and pulled it out, you'd go, ew, ew, not quite done. Let's push that in a little bit longer. You know? <laughs> we are still gooey in the middle. Yeah, we are. Yeah, we are. 
But we continue, each of us in our own unique and stumbling steps, this journey towards Christ-likeness. I want to say there's no such thing as a perfect family. I come from a broken family, and despite my very best efforts, I still come from a broken family. And, you know, I, I just want to thank God because there's beauty in the broken. Would you pray with me? God, indeed, there is no perfect family. You know this full well. We are your family, and we are broken. And Lord, I know that your longing is that us, in all of our brokenness, be safe within the body of Christ to admit our fissures rather than it be the one place we have to hide them all. So God, we come today into this room where we want to respond to your invitation to generosity. And we come first wanting to respond to your invitation to healing, your invitation to honesty, your invitation to be exactly who we are, just as I am, I come. Not dressed up, in my yoga pants, in my sweats, with my t-shirt hanging out. I come, Lord Jesus, I come. There's beauty in the broken. You're not calling us to a life where everything looks perfect on the outside. You're calling us to the other side of brokenness. Help us to let you love us. Help us to risk letting you use us, even our brokenness, to be a source of hope and healing in our very broken world. In your name we pray. Amen.